Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about student loans because student loans are in the news, given the fact that the decision was just made to forgive quite a few of them. And so today we'll talk about the long-term implications of that student loan forgiveness. So, Joel, before we get on to student loans, I'd like to talk about something more general, which is the idea of commitment. You know, I was reading an article recently that talked about, maybe it's apocryphal, but apparently Margaret Mead was asked the question, what would you look for to find the first signs of civilization? And her answer was she would look for a healed femur, a healed broken leg. And her point was that in nature, if you break your leg, you're unable to look after yourself. So if you see a healed broken leg, it must mean that somebody helped somebody else and that that's evidence of civilization. And it sounds pretty convincing, but I was thinking to myself, interesting, bones must have healed before there was civilization. And you have to ask the question, well, why is that? Perhaps. There are things other than civilization, like maybe a parent helping a child, so that bones heal. So I'm more interested in stuff which is not a selected born. Let's think about commitment. I think that the idea of commitment basically allowed human beings to make agreements with each other that greatly increased our overall welfare. But at the same time, I think we need to realize we are not selected to really understand commitment. And it's very difficult for us to commit to things. And that's because I think it's not something that evolution has prepared us for. No, and so therefore we need to come up with mechanisms that allow us to commit to things and to allow us to cooperate in ways that we were never able to before. And so I think a whole field of economics called game theory is dedicated to the question of how this commitment could work and particularly how a lack of commitment can lead to bad outcomes. The very famous prisoner's dilemma, for example, shows you that if both parties have the incentive to not cooperate because it's in their own interest to tell on each other, then both players are going to be worse off. And so a nice segue into the topic that we have today of loans, because if there's one place I think in financial markets where commitment is really important in terms of understanding it, it would be bond contracts or loans. There is this play, that The Merchant of Venice, that brings in the play a lot of factors to the front that we should think about when we think about this type of commitment, and particularly also sort of the moral dilemmas that we can be faced with. So the story is that there is somebody who really needs a loan, cannot get a loan anywhere else, and in the end ends up with a lender who proposes a very questionable type of collateral for the loan to happen. And the collateral that is being proposed is a pound of flesh. So the borrower, if they're willing to put up as collateral a pound of flesh, then the lender is willing to give the loan, allowing the borrower to proceed with what they had in mind. And then of course, the borrower cannot pay back the loan. And so now the question becomes, is the lender allowed to collect on the collateral, yes or no? And in the end, the courts decide that yes, the lender is allowed to collect the pound of flesh, which is tantamount to killing the borrower, 
but also has the condition that because of legal restrictions, that pound of flesh can only be extracted without spilling a single drop of blood. And so in the end, of course, the collateral cannot be collected. But the question now is, this means that in the future, this type of loan contract can never happen again. Because if now people know that courts will not side with the lender to collect the collateral, the loan would never have been given to begin with. And so depending on what pickle the person would have been in at that point, if they never had received the loan, who knows what could have happened to them then. So the question is, we have a very questionable commitment device that the commitment device does lead to a better outcome at the time. But then if we are not willing to follow through with the commitment, then we can never do that again in the future because the reputation has been wasted. And let's think about how much welfare is created by allowing people to commit. For example, if I wish to buy an automobile, many people borrow money to buy the automobile and put the automobile up as collateral. They commit to the lending company that if they stop paying the loan back, they're going to give the car to the lending company. And that allows the lending company to make the loan and in doing so allows people to drive cars. And so a, a huge amount of welfare is created by that commitment. And if on the other hand, some court were to say, no, you don't have to pay the loan back. Nobody would be lending money on cars and we wouldn't be able to drive cars or some fraction of people wouldn't be able to drive cars because they could not afford to buy the car. Correct. Or one other place where it could show up then is that the interest rate that you would charge on the loan would just have to be astronomical if the commitment is not there. But I think you're right. I mean, in practice, it's probably just going to mean that the loans will not be given same is true for housing markets, right? If we think about a mortgage, you put your own house up as the collateral. And I do think that a lot of people think of banks that foreclose on people that don't pay the mortgage as bad actors. But we also have to realize that if the banks are not allowed to collect on the collateral, then the whole mortgage market would collapse. Because what would the mortgage rates look like in a market where you couldn't be putting up your house as the collateral for the loan? So bringing it back to the subject of the podcast, let's talk about student loans. Basically, the president has forgiven students on their student loans. So just to be clear about this, as I understand the current program, any family income of less than $250,000 a year, you're entitled to a $20,000 forgiveness of your loan. So if you think about that, you've got a married couple, both with student loans, making $250,000 a year, they can jointly get $40,000 in a gift from the government of $40,000. And I presume, I, from my understanding, that they won't be taxed on this gift. So it's actually $40,000 after taxes. So before taxes for somebody in that income bracket, that's something like $60,000. Yeah, I know. And then what makes it even more curious, I think, is if we think about who are the people that are actually taking the student loans? Because it is my understanding that many educational institutions, certainly mine and yours, Jonathan, we already give a lot of financial support to people that really cannot pay the tuition. And so if the income of certain families are below a certain level, then essentially you're not paying much tuition to begin with. So the question is, aren't there already middle-class families here that are really taking out the student loans. And so forgiving it is not really helping the poor people, I would say. You know, Jules, it's astonishing how much financial aid a university like Stanford provides. If you go to the Stanford website, you will see that the policy at Stanford is 
if the family income is less than $150,000 a year, now $150,000 of family income is above the median family income in the United States, and it's above it by a lot. But if family income is less than $150,000 a year, you pay no tuition to go to Stanford. So clearly, if you're paying no tuition, you do not need student loans. So the student loans are going to people who are middle-class families earning more than that or going to universities not as wealthy as Stanford. In essence, it is going to people who graduate with bachelor's degrees. And I think that most of the wealth in the United States is already owned with people with a bachelor's degree. I think about a third of the people get a bachelor's degree and they own more than 50% of the wealth. So the question is, should we be giving subsidies to people that already have bachelor's degrees, particularly if those subsidies are financed from tax money that comes from people without a bachelor's degree. We're getting way off the topic, I realize, but you know, it is upsetting, and I think it's worth talking about, this idea that we're providing forgiveness to people with bachelor's degrees. You and I both sat through a seminar last week by Angus Deakney, where he has talked about deaths that result from suicide, drug addiction, and alcoholism. And his main point being that if you look in the United States, for the first time in 100 years, life expectancy is going down. And this is not COVID-related. This happened even before COVID. And then if you look carefully, what you find is it's not going down amongst people with bachelor's degrees. It's going down with people without bachelor's degrees. And that there's this huge divide in America between the people with bachelor's degrees and the people without. And the idea now that the people without bachelor's degrees are now going to subsidize the people with bachelor's degrees seems like a, a transfer that is just a little bit immoral from poor people to rich people. Indeed. So let's bring it back to the topic. So the main thing that we wanted to talk about was the value of commitment. And I think we can both agree that the action of the government is going to change the terms of what that commitment really means. because. Suppose that you now are thinking about taking a student loan or not. The idea that just the student loans have been forgiven must now factor into your analysis and to the trade-offs that you're going to be making, whether you want to finance your tuition fee with student loans or with savings. Yeah, I think the government is committing a classic all-else equal mistake. They're believing that they could forgive student loans and that no other behavior will change. They're ignoring that if I forgive a student loans now, anybody who is taking a student loan or thinking of taking a student loan will obviously factor in the possibility that in the future, student loans will be forgiven again. Another way of saying that is the government is unilaterally lowering the cost of a student loan. And if you lower the cost of a student loan, that puts more money in the pockets of students, which increases that student's willingness to pay. And if you increase somebody's willingness to pay in a monopoly situation, which many colleges are, colleges will raise tuition. So what you're bringing up, I think, is very important. It's not just the behavior of the students that is going to change. So that's an all else equal mistake. But it's also the other players in this dynamic system. And so the educational institutions are also going to change their behavior. I mean, there's this very nice paper by David Luca, Taylor Nadeau, and Karen Shen, 
in which they estimate how much transmission of these student loan programs actually gets from the loan programs into the pockets of the educational institutions. And I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's some staggeringly high amount that is being transferred. As I remember, it was something like 60%. For every extra dollar in student loans, 60 cents lands up in the educational institutions. And we're not talking about a place like Stanford. They often land up in for-profit educational institutions offering degrees where it's debatable how valuable those degrees are. And that's particularly curious because the White House paper on the topic, I think they even have a quote up there that says something like, colleges have the obligations to keep prices reasonable, as well as this quote, protect future students and taxpayers by reducing the cost of college and holding schools accountable when they hike up prices. It seems to me that this loan forgiveness is going to achieve exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. By forgiving student loans, you're actually increasing college tuition. You're not decreasing college tuition. The government has no ability to tell colleges what they can charge for tuition. The net effect is they've increased the willingness to pay of the customers. And if you increase customers' willingness to pay, then institutions respond by increasing prices. And so I think that one other important negative side effect that this has is is sort of the general tendency of not having people bear the consequences of their decisions. When people make decisions about going to college or not, make the decision what major to pick, make the decision of what college and the price point to go to, as well as how they finance that optimally, I think a lot of those parameters have now changed because of this loan forgiveness. The government cannot commit to not forgiving it again in the future. And it seems to me that it's a reasonable expectation for people going to college that a similar move could be expected in the future. And people will react optimally based on that. So I think this is a good time for us to introduce our guest. Our guest is Sheila Baer. Sheila Baer is not only the former chairperson of the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, but I think she's also the perfect guest for this episode because she's recently been working on a model that helps students predict how much student loans they can sustain given the major and given the college that they pick to go to. And so clearly this decision to forgive student loans has major implications for those decisions because it can both affect what college you decide to go to as well as what major you will pick. Sheila, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. So Sheila, let's start right in the meat of things. How important do you think the availability of debt financing is for a decision to go to college? I think for lower income and lower middle income students and families, it's significant. That's kind of the good news and the bad news. There has been a lot of marketing, frankly, of the easy availability of student debt to first-generation borrowers. And we want them to go to college. We want them to have those opportunities, but we also want them to have good quality educations and not take on so much debt that they can't afford to pay it back. So I do think it's important for that cohort. I think the program has not served them well. Default rates are disproportionately populated by first-gen students, students of color, which is sad. And just another one of the many reasons the program needs to be reformed. I think for other families, it probably impacts how they finance, where they go to school, how expensive the school is. So I think it it will impact those types of decisions, but the core decision of going to college, probably not. But where they go and how much they borrow and how they pay for it is definitely a factor. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about 
the recent Biden administration's decision to forgive, I would say, quite a substantial amount. Yeah, four to five hundred billion. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, I had supported some level of debt forgiveness at ten thousand dollars. I think a program of debt cancellation of ten thousand dollars targeted at Pell eligible recipients would have been much easier to defend. It would have been administratively much easier to carry out and I think much less expensive. And by using the pill status as a proxy for income, which is pretty reliable, that makes it administratively so much easier than making people come in with paperwork to document their income, et cetera. So I think that would have made a lot of sense. And then there have been such abuses with the marketing of student debt as quote unquote financial aid. There are studies that show kids don't, after the first year, don't even know they have debt because, you know, it was rolled into this quote unquote financial aid package that's got scholarships and work study and all of that. And mind you, the first gen students are not financially sophisticated. They may come from families never gone to college before. They don't have a full understanding of debt or what's going on. And they've been very vulnerable. And, and the government's let this go on. And it's been going on for years. It's gotten a little better, but it's still a problem. So given the government's culpability and letting so many of these kids to be misled, I did think some level of debt cancellation was warranted. But I also always said, you need to accompany it with reforms because if you don't, this thing is going to get worse. The marketing is going to get worse. Now colleges are going to say, okay, go ahead and borrow to pay and whisper well, you know, they'll probably forgive it again. I mean, you know that's going to happen. You know that's what they're going to say. So if you don't cap the amount that a student can borrow and they have some reforms so that there is some skin in the game for the college, that's going to lead to even worse problems. That'll ease the repayment obligation on the students, but taxpayers are, re are really going to be paying for it. And not that I don't want to be generous. I do, but interest rates are going up. We have limited financial resources, whether people want to admit that or not. You've got to make some decisions about how you spend the federal largesse. I mean, Sheila, it's kind of an aside we really are worried about, which is this culpability and the fact that right. if you forgive loans now, people will expect future loans to be forgiven. That's exactly right. And people will overborrow. But I can't help myself. I mean, when you talk about low-income students and their inability to pay back and the fact that the government was culpable in that matter. You know, I completely agree. But I don't think that's who's going to benefit from this. No, I didn't say they'd be the only ones. I'm completely with you there. I think, again, 10,000 targeted to Pell-eligible families. Likelihood is that they are not heavily represented in that $250,000 household you're talking about. Would have been much more defensible, much better allocation of resources. Yes, it's way more than it needed to be from an equity standpoint. It's going to cost a lot of money and it sets a terrible precedent. And the worst thing about it is it, it doesn't couple it with any kind of reforms to keep this from happening again. Well, you know, Jules and I referenced a paper, which is pretty frightening in the sense that what they did was they used variation in how easy it was to get a student loan because the government goes through various stages and sometimes they make it easy, sometimes they make it difficult. Right, right. And use that variation to measure the pass-through rate. So there are all these for-profit colleges that live on the student loan program, and they found that oh yeah, yeah, sixty cents every new dollar that the government increased the borrowing by sixty cents went to these colleges. Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. There have been horrible abuses. This is a systemic problem. Private colleges, public colleges—they have all not done much to make sure students understand they're borrowing and that they're borrowing at levels that can be repaid. 
That's one of the reasons why, in mentioning some of the things I'm doing now, I'm also a senior fellow at the Peterson Foundation. And we just launched a new initiative called Student Debt Smarter. It's studentdebtsmarter.org. It's easy to find. And what that initiative does, it's got a very simple to use calculator. And the, the point of the calculator is not to tell you the maximum amount you can borrow. This calculator says, you tell us what you think you want to major in, where you think you want to go to school, when you want to start, and where you want to live after you graduate. And we're going to figure out for you the maximum amount you can afford. And we use financial experts, including myself, to determine what the affordable amount is, not what the government says is affordable. And then it gives you a total amount, whether it's 30000 or whatever, you know, it could be lower. It will tell you that don't borrow more than that. And we're trying to get students and their families to rethink about this Think about the obligation, which is what she would do in any kind of setting with a private lender, right? Think about what's the total amount of debt you can afford when you graduate to pay back. And then have a conversation with the financial aid office of wherever you're thinking about going to school and ask them, you know, what's my total debt going to be with this level of borrowing? And force that conversation. If they aren't willing to have it with you, go to another school. And so I've been beating this drum for years. I'm so frustrated. This is so polarized. And there's going to be a lot of heartache and stress for you waiting for the government to make a decision whether you're actually going to get the relief or not. So that's been a big focus of mine. Which bring up such an important point because somebody like you is trying to build a rational decision-making tool where all the trade-offs are properly taken into account. Yes. And now suddenly this decision People may start to wonder, hey, how rational should I really be about this debt piece? Because maybe I should just put in there a probability that I will not have to pay it back. So I see why you're saying, let's just count on that you have to pay it back. That seems to be protect yourself and go with that. That's exactly right. And then, yeah, we set up this process that makes it very difficult for them to understand what they're borrowing. And then when they get stuck with something they didn't understand and they can't afford, oh, we're just going to forgive it. It's just all the wrong lessons. You know, Sheila, the other thing I really support what you're doing is you're implicitly forcing students to understand there's a relation between the cost and the benefit. Yes. In other words, you don't get to just choose any major and expect the benefit to be the same. Yeah. If you have the money, then who cares? But if you don't have the money, you have to borrow the money. You can't ignore what major are you going to pick and what money it's going to generate? And I think that that's a fallacy. That's exactly right. That's another thing that they'll learn from this. School may not matter on the margin, but it's really that your choice of major. And then, of course, your cost of living, which is driven heavily by where you're going to live, which is why we ask for that information, too. But, yeah, they can understand those trade-offs. And it's certainly in math or engineering or whatever is going to be paying a lot more than, than a philosophy major. And that's not to say, if you want to major in philosophy, fine. Understand, you know, you're going to be a barista probably or have a joint major, major in philosophy and chemistry. <laughs> so it forces that kind of decision-making at the beginning of the process when they're starting their educational journey, which I don't think anybody else is encouraging them to do. And that's one of the many reasons I'm very proud of this new tool. Sheila, thank you so much. I mean, it's actually been a really interesting conversation. It has been. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn.
The OLL Sequel Podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by Alumni FM.